Hey, uh, who was the, the good morning yeller? What, what's your name? Brooklyn? Uh, do it one more time. Good morning! Uh, there you go. You always, every week you're going to have one of those, you know, like everyone, good morning, and then there's like, good morning! Um, well, good morning to you, Brooklyn. Um, how'd you guys sleep last night? All righty. All right. Hey, well, uh, take that Bible. Let's jump in. If I can recap with you, last night we're talking about Jonah. He is a rising star. He's a prophet. You just saw it here in the video. Jojo says, I wanted to be the only one that speaks for you because Jonah is a big deal. He is a main conference speaker. The people of Israel respect him. They trust him. And God says to Jonah, go to Nineveh, go to the land of the Ninevites, those who skin and burn their enemies alive, who worship false idols, go to them, Jonah. And then why is the question. And it's the theme of the book of Jonah. It's because God has a heart of compassion for those who do not know him. A profound heart of compassion for those who do not know him. The God that Christians serve is a God who is eager to extend mercy even to those who are like the Ninevites. Not only people who are morally insufficient, not just people who are morally impoverished, but people who are morally bankrupt. God's plan of redemption is not just for the least of these, it's for the worst of these. And this is who God is, but this is way too much for Jonah to handle. So last night, instead of going 500 miles west to Nineveh, Jonah gets on a boat and goes to the other side of the known world, 2,500 miles east. And when we're running from God, there will always be a boat leaving right on time. Now, question for you. Anybody's birthday today? Really? Are you? Hey, uh, get out of here. Um, anybody's birthday this weekend? Really? There's a thousand people in here. You? Okay, come here. Here, come on. Okay. Uh, both of you? Okay, come here, both of you. It's fine. Do you guys know each other? It's your birthday's tomorrow. Okay, come on up. Uh, stand on this turf. Anybody play golf? I can't, I can't say I do. Okay. Um, What's your name? Corey. Corey. When's your birthday? Tomorrow. Tomorrow? How old are you turning? 26. 26. Okay. And then what's your name? Drake. Drake. And what church are you from, Drake? Uh, CCV. CCV. Okay. And what church are you from, Corey? Uh, Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara. Calvary Chapel. Wait. Do you know Alex the Shredder? Yeah. Where's Alex the Shredder? Where is he? Alex, you're near to my heart. Okay. Um, hey, can we do this? Uh, let's all stand and sing for them happy birthday. Okay. Um, here we go. One, hey, hey, guys, this is a big deal. Okay. One, two, three. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Corey and Drake. Happy birthday, dear Corey and Drake. Happy birthday to you. Oh! All right, give it up. All right, thanks, Corey and Drake. Yeah, okay. Now, 
I've been at a lot of camps. The, the odds of only having two people's birthdays is actually pretty rare if you think about it. But when I come up, I have someone come and listen to people singing happy birthday to them. It's kind of awkward, right? Have you guys ever gotten up on stage and everyone sings happy birthday to you? Did you see Corey and Drake? Corey was kind of like this for a minute and then Drake just went like this the whole time. <laughs> he was just cool with it, like no big deal. People sing happy birthday to me every year, especially a thousand people. It's kind of a funny dynamic, right? Because you don't know how to respond. Sometimes you're shy and in self-deprecating in a way where you're like, thanks guys, no, thank you, thank you. Like, and in the middle of the cha-cha-chas, you're going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah, okay, it's okay, simmer down. <laughs> you know? And in our minds, this is kind of how we think God will respond when we give God the attention that he deserves. We kind of think it's like a person on stage having everybody sing happy birthday to him and God is going to hear someone say, oh God, you deserve all the glory. You are unlike any other God. And he's gonna be like Drake going, thanks, but no, it's okay. All right, I'm done, all right, I'm done. Thanks guys, you can simmer down. But the biblical God is not a, guy who, a God who is shy. He's not self-deprecating. He doesn't go, ah, shucks, thanks guys, don't worry about it. You can stop, no need to give me the cha-cha-chas. The biblical God is a God who when he is given praise and glory, he goes like this, louder, louder. Hey, you in the back, louder. Because the biblical God is a God who is jealous for his own glory and who doesn't just deserve praise. He demands praise. He's not shy about it. He doesn't say, ah, oh, thanks, no need to continue. I get it, you guys are kind. He goes, the greatest thing in your life is to do that again. Run it back, run it back. One of the things we're gonna talk about today is the attribute of God that God loves most. An attribute of God is something that we attribute to God. It's meaning a way that we define him or really it's, it's something that he is. And we're gonna talk about God's sovereignty today and the response that Jonah has to the sovereignty of God. Now, I want you to think with me because when we talk about the attributes of God, that would be like God's love, God's holiness, his sovereignty, his mercy, his omnipresence, which means that he is everywhere at all times. Sometimes we look at these attributes of God as pieces of the pie that is God. Does that make sense? Like he's 10% justice, 10% wrath, 75% love, but we can't think about it that way. We're gonna focus on one of these attributes, but we need to know that God is all of his attributes all of the time. He's always holy, he's always just, he's always loving. And what we see in the opening pages of Jonah is that God is a sovereign God. Can I read the account for you in the scripture? And here's why. You guys should always be doubting of a speaker on stage. And anytime anybody says the Bible says, develop an instant reflex of going, show me where, show me where. So I wanna show you where in the Bible, heads down. Jonah, chapter one, verse 17 is where we pick up where we left off. Jonah 1, 17, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God. Can I pause there for a second? There's a 
world of difference between praying to a God and then it says praying to the Lord, his God. It's one thing to say that the Lord is a shepherd. It's another thing to say the Lord is what? My shepherd. I think it's Spurgeon who says, you might say you have a bank, but what makes that bank valuable if you have money in it? And Jonah says, I'm praying to my God. It's a world of difference and worthy of note. From the stomach of the fish, and he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried out for help from the depth of Sheol. That just means the bottom. You heard my voice, for you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. So I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. But you have brought me up from the pit, O Lord my God. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. Here's what we're seeing. In verse 4 of chapter 1, it says the Lord hurled the wind. And then it's going to say the Lord appointed a great fish in 117. Do you know what that means? It literally means that God, there's this video on uh, Twitter I was watching the other day, and it's John Williams, you know, the guy that, he's a composer, and he did like, Jurassic Park and everything, you know, and he's just going like this with all the different instruments and he's composing a grand, like a grand symphony. And the word for appointed a fish is literally mean that God is the one who is conducting the symphony of the universe. And he goes like this with a great fish. Play your part. And the fish goes to play its part and it swallows Jonah because only God can do this. And then look at what Jonah says in verse three, he says, your breakers and your billows passed over me. Jonah understands, and we saw this in the video, that you're the one that is doing this. This isn't happening by chance. You're the one that is doing this because why? God is a sovereign God. And here's what that means. I want you to understand, we just sang something that God is the king of kings. Now we live in an environment where that could be a relative term, but you could have a king, like let's say in England, there's the, the queen, and then you have like Prince Harry, and what's his wife's name? Okay, I know you read the news. Okay, People Magazine. Okay, so he's got his girl, but here's the reality. They are mainly figureheads. Who runs the UK? The Prime Minister Parliament. They're mere figureheads, so they don't actually rule and reign. They're there as show. They pose for magazines. They kind of wield some influence, but they're not actually in charge. When we say that God is the king, what makes him sovereign is he not only has the authority to rule and reign, but he exercises that authority every single minute of every single day for all of eternity over every single molecule in the universe. That's what it means that God is sovereign. It means that he rules and he reigns and he's the boss. He's the boss and he is the conductor of the symphony of the universe. And maybe you've heard this, and maybe this doesn't sit well with you initially because it, you've gone through things that are difficult. 
I want to just detail for you, and this, I could talk about God's sovereignty uh, for a whole weekend and we barely scratched the surface. But I want to give you a, today just five spheres over which God exercises his sovereignty in general. And then I want to tell you five responses that Jonah has to the sovereignty of God because that's what the passage is on. The passage, because when we teach the Bible, we teach what the passage is talking about. It's Jonah's response to a sovereign God. It's he finally gets it. It clicks. I'm not the king of the universe. We saw it. He's there in the trash can. He goes, you are. Okay, so if you're wondering what God's sovereignty means, it means five things or five realms God exercises as sovereignty. Number one, God is sovereign over nature. In Matthew 10, Jesus says, I know every single time a bird falls to the ground. And he appoints that time. Fish do the bidding of God. In Jonah 4, worms do the bidding of God. Plants do the bidding of God. In Psalm 147, it says that God appoints the stars in the sky. I walked outside last night at midnight, and I'm looking at the stars, and you think, man, there's millions of them, millions and billions and trillions of stars. And it says in Psalm 147, verse four, the Lord places the stars in the heavens, comma, and he gives each of them their name. Because there is nothing in all of creation that is not under the sovereign rule of a king of the universe. So God is sovereign over nature. Every time a tree falls, God knows and he ordains it. He's not just aware, he is orchestrating like a grand, like a grand symphony. Number two, God is sovereign over nations. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is like a channel of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Proverbs, please write these verses down. Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. God's sovereignty never dismisses or negates human responsibility. But like a cable throughout the Bible, we know that God is absolutely sovereign over the nations. So when we look at what's happening in the news and you see what's happening in Ukraine, you know the greatest comfort of those who are hiding in underground tunnels right now, if they know Christ? It's that God is not confused. He's not panicked. God has never responded to anything. He's never said, Gabriel, what's plan B here? This president was elected by God. And the next president will be elected by God. God is sovereign, number three, over evil and suffering. In Genesis 50, Joseph has been betrayed by his brothers, right? And they come to him, and if you're unfamiliar with the story, he gets sold into slavery by his brothers, and they come to him, and he doesn't say, man, you jerks! If it wasn't that God made a horrible situation and somehow managed to make it a salvageable situation, I'd really hate your guts. No, he says, what God meant, or what you meant for evil, God what? Okay, I want you to be careful in the next word. What God, he says, what you meant for evil, God, and I think a number of you said turned into good. But I want you to understand something. God is not turning bad situations into good situations. It does not say God turned it into good. He says what you meant for evil, God meant 
for good. Which means that God isn't going, Bill Bilicek, he's not calling audibles going, hey, 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 what's going on over here? Okay, this guy's not playing his part, come on. All right, boys. God knew that would happen. Um, God's not calling audibles in his holy huddle. He's ordaining all things. If God were not sovereign over evil and suffering, then there is no meaning in suffering. And the greatest comfort to those who have endured suffering is they can rest their head on a pillow at night going, the God who allows and ordains this to happen is the same God who deeply, deeply loves me. Because God's sovereignty can never be divorced from his absolute care and compassion on your life. One writer says, there is no attribute of God more comforting to his children than the doctrine of divine sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances in the most severe troubles, they believe that the sovereign God has ordained their afflictions and sovereignty overrules them and sovereignty will sanctify them. Meaning sanctify means that you'll become more like Jesus. Here's 1 Peter 4 in the New Testament. It says, let those who suffer according to God's will. Did you hear that? those who suffer according to God's will and trust themselves to a faithful God while doing good. There is not a moment or mile on this earth that does not rest in the sovereign hand of God. He is not juggling. He is conducting. And if you're a Christian, can you say amen? amen? Fourth, God is sovereign over time, meaning that from cradle to coffin, Every second you will live is ordained by God. Psalm 139, he knit you together in your mommy's womb. And then the psalmist will say, every day that I will live has been ordained for you before one of them came to be. Psalm 90, your last breath will be ordained by God. This is who God is. And Jonah is beginning to recognize this. When God, we talk about God's holiness last night, right? And what does God's holiness mean? It means that he is totally what? Other than us, okay? When God wants to declare his otherness, you know the first attribute he often declares? I am God, Isaiah 46, and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Okay, so I told you this with the birthday song. God is not shy about being unlike you or me. He's pumped on it. And he wants you to really think about it and he wants you to love how different God is. Because God is nothing like us. And he says, I am God and there is none like me. I am God and there is no other. Now he's about to explain why he is so different than you or me. What is the main reason? He says, I am God, there is none like me. I am God and there is no other. Okay, why? I ordain the end from the beginning. Things that have not been done, I'm the one that conducts everything. When God wants you to know something of his otherness, he talks about his sovereignty because you and I are absolutely not sovereign at all. We can't control one hair on our head and God is in absolute control of every molecule. And he wants you to know the great difference. And Jonah is beginning to recognize this. I told you there were five things over which God is sovereign and I'll get to the fifth as we see Jonah's conclusion. But there's five signs that Jonah has in the belly of a whale of surrender before a sovereign God because you at 13 or 18 need to understand this if you're gonna live a life of faithfulness to God. You need to behold God in his sovereignty. So number one, Jonah in the belly of the whale. 
His response to a sovereign God, he is humbled before God, before God. Jonah is humbled before God. In the dark belly of a great fish, waist high in guts and water and whatever else is in the fish, there Jonah reflects. And one of the things to notice is it wasn't immediately, but it says on the third day, Jonah found himself humbled before a God that was appointing storms, wind, waves, fish, under his great control, and Jonah, obviously in great physical danger, is compelled by feeling not just of his physical danger, but by his spiritual sinking. His thought as he's in the belly of a whale is, oh God, I'm gonna die, oh God, I'm gonna die. He's saying, oh God, you are God and I am not. You are God and I am not. You are God and I am not. He's humbled before God. It is, if you will, he is being not just physically drowned, but spiritually drowned with a new sense of the supremacy of God. He's not just like you and me. You're definitely not his homeboy. So you might see shirts that say, Jesus is my homeboy. He is not your homeboy. He is a king. And everyone who understands the sovereignty of God doesn't go, sup, bro. No, they go, oh God, you are God. You are God. And Jonah is humbled before God. In verse three, he says, your breakers and your billows are crashing over me. Yes, you saw it in the video. The sailors are the instruments of divine providence, but God is the one who is casting him. In verse five, it says, these weeds that engulf me are doing the bidding of God. He's saying these weeds in the belly of a fish are wrapped all around my head. And the one thing I cannot get out of my head is that I am a man and God is God. Jonah became appalled at his own rebellion only after seeing the sovereignty of God. It's if there is a mirror in the belly of a whale, not where Jonah sees his face, but he sees his soul, and he is humbled. This is a spiritual prerequisite, not just for spiritual usefulness, but for spiritual restoration, to be right with a holy God. You must be humbled before him. Jonah realizes that howling winds and waves are the puppets of the conductor of the universe. He has come to an end of himself. If you ever studied Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son, the prodigal comes to himself in the pig pen and he realizes the vile environment that he is in is not just that He's sitting in something that's gross. He recognizes that his own heart is gross before a holy God. And this is what is happening to Jonah. Jonah's not just going, yuck, yuck. He's going, oh my goodness. God is revealing the contents of my heart to me. And the grossest thing about my circumstance right now is not the guts that I'm in, in the belly of a whale. It's the sin that penetrates my own heart and soul because I've seen God. I've seen his supremacy and his sovereignty. And this terrible experience, and if you've ever gone through great suffering, this terrible experience had made him pliable and moldable and humble before God, ready to receive new instruction because his mouth was shut. He wasn't talking, no God, you don't get it. I don't go to the backyard. You don't get it, God. I get what you're trying to do. Trust me, bro. No, his mouth had been shut because God's the boss and you're not. This is a prerequisite for every single person to come to a saving relationship with God. Their mouths must also be shut before a holy God. Romans 3, 3.19, 
every mouth will be shut before a holy God. Because as long as you think you can haggle with God, all right, dude, I see what you're trying to do. I'm gonna make you a deal. And you mark Cuban with God. That was, I guess, a counselor reference. Um, you guys don't know who Mark Cuban is? Shark Tank? Okay, never mind. Um, as, thank you, Buzzhead. As long as you think you can haggle with God, you've missed it, and you've never been humbled before him. Martin Luther is known for saying this. I love this. God created the world out of nothing, and he will do nothing out of you until you realize you are nothing before him. Not in the sense where you're not valuable, but in the sense that you don't get to haggle with God because he's the boss. The fifth chair violinist doesn't go, John Williams, you don't know what you're doing. He does his part. It is impossible for God to make use of those who are high. And so recognizing God's sovereignty causes us to be humbled before him. So number one, God is a sovereign God, and Jonah's response is humility before him. Number two, not just humility, there is a hunger for God's word. And maybe you don't see this explicitly, which is why we study the Bible, which is why I don't want to waste my time um, talking about it. I want you to look down with me. There's a hunger for God's word. Now, where do we see this? Because it's not necessarily like he goes, God, I want your word. No, where we see this is that in the 10 verses of Jonah's prayer, seven of the 10 verses are direct references to what he would have had memorized as a boy from the Psalms. It's as if in the belly of the whale. I mean, have you ever gone through true tragedy? Have you, ever, have you watched the videos recently of the people on the run for their lives in Ukraine? Do you know what their soul food is right now? It's the words of God. It's the words of God. And Jonah in the belly of the whale has no original thought but it's like the dam burst of his memory. And all he can say to God is verses he would have memorized as a young boy. I wanna just show you a few of these. It says in verse two, I cried out, to my or out of my distress to the Lord for he answered me. Where do we see that? Psalm 120, I called on the Lord in my distress and he answered me. Then he's going to say in verse, four, or verse five, the weeds were wrapped around my head in Psalm, Psalm 18.4, we, we see the cords of death around my head. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. The cords of the grave coiled around me. In my distress, I called to the Lord. Verse three, it says, for you have cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea. Lamentations three says, the waters closed over my head. I thought I was about to perish. Psalm 69, Psalm 12, Psalm three, Psalm 14. God save me, the waters are over my head. Jonah is reciting verbatim the word of God to God. Do you wanna know how to pray? How many of you really pray, okay? Do you know what prayer is fundamentally? Do you wanna know how I pray? It's not just, hey God, give me a good day. Help me to do well on Mrs. Dolgen's English test or whatever. It's reciting to God the scripture and saying, make true of your promises to me, God. Some, or verse four, 
He says, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. We see that same thing in Psalm 31, 22. Verse six of Jonah, he says, I descended to the roots of the mountains, but you have brought my life up from the pit. Where do we see that? Psalm 30, verse three. You, Lord, have brought me up from the realm of the dead. You have spared me from going down into the pit. Psalm 103, the Lord redeems my life from the pit. Let me just tell you this. When Jonah beholds God as a sovereign God, do you know what you want more than anything when you see who God is? You want to hear him speak. Do you guys understand this? Do you guys understand that it's one thing to come to a recognition that God is out there? It's another thing to go, oh God, have you revealed yourself? How can I know what you're really like? And then Jonah, after going, man, this is the God who's going like this with fish and worms and wind and waves. What are you like, oh God? Are you just some force out there conducting the universe that's impersonal and abstract and distant from my life? No, he is a God who speaks. And when Jonah beholds this, Jonah goes, the word of God that I have rejected is the word I crave the most. Give me more of your word. Every time there's a movement of God, it's anchored around one thing. You know what that is? It's the people of God saying, give me more of the word of God. God's words are God's gift to God's people in the midst of great affliction. And in the midst of great affliction, Jonah sets his affection upon something firm, something to ground him. There is no greater grounding than the words of God. In the volatility of the fish's stomach, he says, give me something that I can rest my feet on. And in a shaking world, you know what you can do? Commit your life to something firm and sure. And so this is a response of beholding the sovereignty of God. But not only is there a humility before God, and secondly, not only is there a hunger for God, verse four, there is thirdly, a thirst for the presence of God in response to beholding his sovereignty. Okay, so I want you to think. Last night we looked at one of the two main things regarding sin is that there's a rejection of the word of God, right? And then secondly, there's a fling from the what? Presence of God. He's fleeing from the presence of God. But now after seeing who God is and coming to an end of himself, what Jonah longs for is to be near to the presence of God. Now in verse four of chapter two, it says, I've been expelled from your sight. He's saying, God, we're not on speaking terms. I feel distant from you. Have you ever felt distant from God in your sin and felt like I can't just approach you? And then there's, it says, nevertheless, I will look again to your holy temple. This isn't actually a statement. In Hebrew, it's a question. He's saying, will I ever look upon your temple? Do you know what Jonah's asking? It's not that Jonah misses his stomping grounds. It's not that he's going, I wanna go back to my turf and show guys how powerful and influential I am. That's not what he's saying. He longs for the temple of God. Do you know why? It's because the temple of God was the one place in the Old Testament where God had promised to make his presence known and where you could receive forgiveness of sins. And so Jonah Beholding God's sovereignty is going, this is crazy. The God who conducts the universe is the same God who has adopted me near as a son. And that's the God I'm fleeing from? How foolish am I? How foolish am I? Oh Lord, what have I done? I've been running from your presence, but all I want right now, oh God, please, have I been expelled from your sight? Is it permanent? I long to be near to God. I long to be near to God. I've been expelled from your sight, but please invite me back. Invite me back, Lord. I want to be near 
to you. Facing physical death and the reality of being disowned by God, he thirsts for the presence of his God. Have you ever longed to know something more of the presence of God? Ask yourself this question. Because it's a spiritual birthmark of a Christian. Does your understanding of sin drive you towards God's presence or away from God's presence? We just sang this morning, the joy of the Lord is my strength. Something you gotta think through Psalm 16, I think verse 11, it says, you make known to me the path of life and in your presence there is fullness of what? Joy. You will never have the joy of the Lord if you don't live in the presence of the Lord. That's a promise because there is no such thing. Number four, Jonah makes a recommitment to faithfulness to God. In verses eight and nine, he says, those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed, I will pay. He's saying those who regard vain idols, they forsake their faithfulness. He's saying, God, I want to rid my life more and more because I've seen your sovereignty. I know who you are. I want to rid my life of everything that causes me to be blind to the reality of who you are. Those who regard vain idols, they fill their life with sin. They fill their life with pornography and whatever other sin pollutes their thinking. There are other people that have other materialistic idols. They long to just, they, they worship the God of self-image. People regard vain idols and they forsake you, God. He's saying, now, after I've seen who you are, Lord, I recognize my sin. I'm hungering for your word. I'm thirsting for your presence. Oh, God, I'm doubling down on my commitment to you. Sin's not worth it, God. It's not. He says with the hymn writer, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, unto thee. Take my moments and my, day, my days. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. One of the things that happens when we are spiritually quickened or awakened is that we want to pursue the sin in our life to the death. What God forbids, I reject and I hate and I run from. And what God loves and commands, I embrace. And this is Jonah's response to a sovereign God. Finally, I wanna line this up. I said five things God was sovereign over and I only mentioned four because there's a fifth. And that fifth thing God is sovereign over is salvation. And Jonah is going to have a fifth response to this as well because he has a renewed understanding of grace. He says at the end of verse nine, salvation is from the who? The Lord. Great truths are learned in deep trouble. One writer says, Jonah learned this sentence of good theology in a strange college. Suffering is the seminary of praise. 
This is the theme of the Bible from the beginning of the end. Salvation is from the Lord. So here's Jonah going, God, salvation was never mine to give. It was always yours to extend. I thought you didn't want to save the people that were in the backyard. Welcome to the backyard gnomes. You know, I didn't think that the gospel was for them. I thought, God, they didn't deserve it. They don't know you. They, they should never know you. But Jonah there, after beholding the sovereignty of God, goes, what was I thinking, God? You've extended mercy and grace to me, and it was never mine to really hoard. It was only mine to extend to those whom, we w- whom you will. John 6, the Father draws those whom he wants to draw. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. God is sovereign over salvation, which is never a catalyst for passivity for preaching Christ. You know what it is? The greatest fuel because God has promised to save sinners. And how do we, we can talk about this for an hour. How do we know where our human responsibility and God's sovereignty line up? We just confess that they're both true biblically. Jesus says, repent. And he also says, I'm the one that's gonna draw you because there's something you need to understand. From beginning to end, salvation is a gift. It's a gift from God. And Jonah recognizes this and says, salvation is from the Lord Ultimately, the Bible is a book about Jesus, okay? And do you want to see the greatest demonstration of the sovereignty of God? It's when the greater Jonah, sometime later, at the appointed time, endured the greatest evil for your sin. In the suffering servant, he suffered because it was appointed by God. And the greatest evil happened to the greatest good ever. And one thing I wanna tell you just about God's sovereignty, that must have been precious to Jonah and it's precious to me because maybe like you, I've gone through difficult things as well. It's that God is not a distant God in the midst of his sovereignty, meaning that he's not conducting the universe up there. He sits down with us And in John 11, there's a passage. I just want to talk about it, and I I could talk for a while, but i got to be done. In John 11, there's a passage, and it says that Lazarus died. And Jesus knew that he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead, right? But it says that before that, the shortest verse in the Bible, in our English Bibles, is that Jesus what? Wept. The question I want you to think through is why did Jesus weep if he knew he was about to raise Lazarus? Why? It makes no sense. He doesn't walk into crying and wailing and go, you guys, check this out. Laz. No, but you know what he does? He sees people weeping, and then he weeps with them. Do you know why? It's because Jesus is a sovereign God, but he's also a sympathetic God, and he weeps with those who weep, and he sits with you in your pain and he makes you a promise. Do you know that I love you? The word of God says. Have I not demonstrated my love for you? Then I want you to know that everything that happens in your life is ultimately for my glory and for your good. And you may not see it now, but one day the mosaic of all that I've been doing, you'll see in glory. And you'll say, thank you, Father. You are a good God, a loving God a sovereign God, and my only response is a humble submission to a sovereign God. Can I pray?
Lord, we love you. And we're thankful for the word of God that instructs us on the character of God and draws out the natural response of man. Lord, I pray that you would draw this more truth out of your word for us and through your spirit would you drive these realities home into our hearts. I'm so grateful that the conductor isn't distant, but he is a father who draws me to himself. I pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said.